0: You know if you put a popper out there a deer hair popper and you twitch it then you just don't do anything just leave uh-huh. it alone and you just leave it alone and you just know that they used to say smoke a cigarette and then, <laughs> and then twitch the fly well i don't smoke but anyway so you, you leave it there and then you just give it a little twitch and then all of a sudden there's this explosion and this thing comes out of the water and then comes down on the top of the fly and hits it that boy, that'll wet your pants, I tell you, that's pretty exciting.
1: Two roads diverged in a wood, and I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. Detail is about paying attention to the little things, and no one knows this better than today's guest, Wayne Llewellyn. Wayne is one of the best flight tires alive. His approach to tying is fresh, detail oriented dynamic, efficient, and effective. I'm your host, Gordon Funderspay. Don't panic. This is the Feather Mechanic. The first time I ever read about you was in 1994 or 95, I think. I bought a book called "The World's Best Trout Flies." Remember? When I it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so John Roberts compiled this book, as you know. Yep, and, and basically, for a 14-year-old boy who, who just started fly tying, it was the best book because I got to know all these people. And, and, and I, I mean, the greats are all in there and, the, and their ideas. It's, it's not a patterns book. It's an ideas book. You're the first one to talk about that book. That's,
0: uh, thank you. I, 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 I'm glad that it, that book has been recognized. When I first started tying, I wanted to tie a little bit of everything. And then I started uh, tying what I called realistic flies, who were basically just latex bodies with kink tackle barbs for legs and so forth. But that was kind of the early days of the realistic thing back in the 70s. And then I got into the featherwing salmon flies. And then unluckily, I got to be known as a salmon fly tire. I didn't want that. (laughs) I like to tie flies. I just like to, it doesn't matter if it's, if it's a simple little jig or a, a saltwater fly or an exotic salmon fly or a very, very simple little trout fly. And I, I noticed also, I love to teach. And I noticed that I had students that wanted to take the salmon fly classes, but they tended to be very, very dedicated in order to do it. Or I'd be demonstrating fly tying and tying a salmon fly at a show. I'd have one or two people who would spend time with me. And, and I realized, well, I'm not really getting the audience that I want. And I wasn't looking for people. I was looking for people to instruct and share ideas with. And I couldn't do that with salmon flies because there was just – I just didn't have those people. They would say, oh, those are pretty, and then they move along. But mm-hmm. then I decided, you know what? I can demonstrate simple little trout flies with a – as you know, since you tie salmon flies beautifully – Simple little trout flies share exactly the same techniques and you gain a much larger audience. So I'd have 10 or 15 or 20 people standing in front of me at a show where I used to have only one or two. And so I could, I could reach a larger number of people and still share the same information. And that's what I want to do. I just love to teach and share information with people. And it really has served me better to walk away from salmon flies. And I've done that pretty much entirely now. And I'm now no longer known as the salmon fly tire. I just tie flies. That's it. I grew up in the town of Lindsay, California, in the USA. Uh, it's a small little town at that time, about 5,000 people. Most everybody knew everybody. I lived out on a ranch. My father grew citrus trees, oranges, primarily a few olives and nectarines and pomegranates, but mostly it was citrus. And I was a farm boy. And, um, But I like to tinker with my hands. I build model airplanes and things like that. I remember one day my father had an old pocket watch. And I said, Dad, can I take that pocket watch apart? And he said, son, you can take it apart as long as when you take it apart, you should be able to put it back together again. I've never forgotten that. And that emphasized to me concentration and preciseness and just paying attention to the details. And I, I was fascinated with that. And so then... All that time, my brother, I had one brother, and my mom and dad and, and brother and I would travel about California in various places, and we would fish some. And, but in those days, it was, it was bait fishing, and I probably ate more of the cheese than I fed to the fish. I didn't eat the worms, but I, <laughs> I, I didn't eat the salmon eggs, but uh, I love that, that cheese. And uh, we caught trout, and of course, my dad in those days loved to keep the trout. And that was okay. That's how I grew up. So I suppose that's what I was supposed to do. I wasn't really thrilled eating trout, but it was something that we did. And then one time I I began to notice fishing with friends that uh, certain friends that fly fished caught a lot more fish. Well, I wasn't catching nearly as many fish as my dad's friend, Orby Wilson, who fly fished. And So I thought maybe if I fly fished, I'd catch more fish. My dad had an old glass rod. It was a terrible old thing, I'm sure, and who knows what kind of line it was. He had some... uh, I, I Maybe you've seen them before. Back in the 50s and 60s, there were uh, little packets of flies that the Japanese put out that are probably still out there, available. And they were red tails of this and that. They're very poorly tied, but they were Japanese flies, quote unquote. And so my dad and I were fishing on a, a little creek called Stevenson Creek, the north Fork of Stevenson Creek that, that feeds into a lake called Shaver Lake. My dad and I hiked up that stream and I had his fly rod. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was flinging that fly back and forth and I was catching fish and I was catching a lot of fish and I decided this is great fun. And at that time I was 18 years of age.
1: The thing that always amazed me about you was exactly that, how precise you were and how detail oriented you were. Um, you were kind of right in the beginning of remember when the whole internet, uh, YouTube uh, teaching people tying even before that you you did uh, instructional videos on VHS and and, and and that kind of thing and the thing that always amazed me and some of those old videos are now on YouTube there, there's a video of you tying a Baron do you, do you know that? Yep.
0: Yeah, that's the only one, actually. Well, no, no, that's not true. There there are a few that um, I don't know where they came from. I don't remember when or where they were done, but they just showed up on the Internet.
1: You, you're one of the very few tires who gives people options when you're teaching. You'll, for instance, say, okay, this is how I tie the body, but you could do it in these other ways, too. And then you'll demonstrate them. You'll give people options. It, it won't just be a this is the way. Yeah. There is
0: no way. Yeah, yeah. And let me let me butt in there for a little bit. Something that, that bothers me is, is there are people that say that there is a right way to tie a salmon fly, or oh no, I should say salmon fly, a fly. Period. You must have, for instance, the tail has to be a shank and a half, or whatever it is, and the wing has to be three quarters of a whatever. For introductory fly tying, I don't like to call it beginning. I prefer be- introductory. For introductory fly tying, yes, some basic rules, measurements may be very, very useful to get folks going. But then if you look at the actual insects, oftentimes their wings aren't twice the hook gape or whatever. You you tie accordingly to match the situation. And there has to be some creativity. Stephen Fernandes and I have talked about this a lot. And it bugs us when people say, this is the way you must tie this fly. There is no right or wrong way to do it. Uh, why not tie it in reverse with a tail at the eye? Why not tie it upside down? If it'll cast and if it'll function properly on the water and it will simulate a food form that the fish eat, then go for it. Uh, become creative. Let your mind open up. Stephen is the artist. He's the creative one. I'm I'm the construction guy, although Stephen is as well. <laughs> we talk about that a lot. And you are as well. I see that in you. You're the artist and, and – the technician for the detail. And I love that. But so many people think it's got to be done this way or that way. No, 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 no. It's like you and I discussed earlier about that Western coachman body. Um, My goodness, there's, I, I gave you a couple of ways to do it. I can come up with about six or seven different ways to do the exact same body to come up with different results and pick whatever you like. Runer Warhus in, in Oslo, Norway, and I have talked about that. He has a way that he prefers to twist the hurl. And great. It comes out with a slightly different look. Uh, whatever functions properly, whatever is durable, what uh, it, do what you need
1: to do to get the results you're after. So, okay. So tell me a bit about you starting fly tying. When did you start and how did you start? Mm-hmm.
0: August 1974, I thought, okay, I'm going to save big bucks. What You know, everybody says that. And so thousands of dollars later, and I, you know, I mean, thousands of dollars. And it's, uh, I have a, a room dedicated to fly tying with a closet behind my back here that's full of materials that I'll never, ever use. My wife knows who to go to when I drop dead to turn to to get rid of a lot of this stuff and my huge library and everything else. Um, but it was um a way of of pacifying my need to do things with my hands and become a little more creative as i say i mentioned that i like to build model airplanes and i i built rockets that we launched and and there's all kinds of things that i did detail things with my hands that i really enjoyed and this was uh, ho gauge railroad trains stuff like that i just love fine detail work and um i I started tying flies just to go fishing initially about a year into it, Mickey Powell, then the owner of uh, Buzz's fly shop here in Visalia for Buzz Music fly shop, he offered me the opportunity to tie some custom orders and so I did a fairly simple sort of a sort of a variation of a woolly bugger was the first one that I did for the shop, mm-hmm. and he made a point of telling me that uh, if I was going to do custom orders that I needed every single fly to be near identical. His uh, definition of a commercial fly versus a custom fly was commercial flies. You could get away with one or two out of a dozen that weren't just nigh identical, but he says for custom orders, they've got to look exactly alike. And so I did that for the shop. I do uh, some guy, instead of doing doing, uh, four or five dozen of atoms or something rather than a size 14, some guy would want maybe three or six or a dozen of something. And it might be some unique pattern that wasn't even in the fly shop's bin of flies, some weird Mm -hmm. thing. I I remember one fly that had uh, uh, blue macaw secondaries for wings of the fly, stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. I love that. And I, I did do large numbers occasionally, but I didn't enjoy that at all. But I did that sort of thing. And I did that for a number of years. And that really taught me a great deal. And then shortly after that, I was invited to do um, uh, something for the Federation of Fly Fishers down in LA, a demonstration fly tying. And and that kind of uh, introduced me to several people in the Federation that brought invitations to tie at various shows. The first uh, conclave with the FFF that I tied at was 1980 in Spokane, and then I've Tied at most everyone since then. Uh, there were a few that I skipped, but uh, most of those I've tied at since. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I've tied at regional events as well as uh, for clubs, uh, for Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, um, various things like that. But demonstration tying and a lot of classes, uh, classes in all kinds of places. I really enjoy the classes. I enjoy that. Uh, ability to share ideas. And as I tell my students, when they leave my class, if their head is spinning, then I've done my job. If if, uh, they leave my class and they never, ever use one of the techniques in my class again, I'm okay with that. But if I made them think, then I did my job. And that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to open people's eyes to ideas and uh, to become better fly tires, I've had people refer to my flies as being pretty. That drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, why not tie a pretty fly? Uh, I figure the trout or whatever fish you're going after is going to give its very best that it can to me. So why shouldn't I give my very best to that prey? So that's the way I look at it.
1: Well, for me, tying is, is the very beginning of the circle, you know. the. When, I, when you catch a fish, it starts before you catch a fish. You, you sit there at your vice, and you start tying. And the minute you start tying that fly, you, you open up a circle. And I see the fly I'm fishing well, I'm tying. I see that fly being fished. I can see the piece of water I'm going to fish it on. I, I have a very specific plan for that fly.
0: I have a policy that uh, when I tell my students when I start the class, uh, the way I look at fly tying is I believe that anybody can be a very good fly tire if they have four things. First of all, they need to have reasonable eyesight. That may require wearing a pair of glasses or or visor with magnification. That's fine. They need to have reasonable dexterity. They need to have a thorough understanding of the nature of the materials they're using. The nature, that's the key word, the nature of the materials they're using. And the fourth thing is a, is a thorough understanding of thread control. If you can have those four things, I think you can tie any fly reasonably well. And when I, when I do my classes, I say, Th- think about this as an art project. Not that I'm necessarily an artist, but think of it this way. You have your vise as the easel. The hook is your canvas. The bobbin holder is your paintbrush handle. And the thread and your materials, well, the thread is the bristles of the brush, shall we say. And your materials, Mm -hmm. which includes the thread sometimes, is your paint. And just like any well-done painting, the painting takes place in the artist's mind before the paint ever strikes the canvas. And so plan the fly in your head. Now, just like an artist sometimes will change their plan somewhere along the way, or they may even paint over, or they may scrape away paint. Well, with fly tying, you can do the same thing. You can unwind that thread and you can add more thread or you can change the materials or you can adjust things, but have some idea of the fly long before you ever even touch the thread to the hook. And when you touch the thread to the hook, put it on in the right location. I have a method of putting on thread that I call a reverse jam hitch. I would say the majority of the time, I want a thread foundation because of a friction point. I don't want a slippery surface that materials will slide around on, usually. Not necessarily, Mm -hmm. but usually. And so I will begin the thread oftentimes at the bend of the hook and wind toward the eye. Well, you can certainly do a standard jam hitch and begin the thread at the eye, wind back get your thread foundation, then wind overwind that back to the front. Well, if you wind flat, smooth thread winds, you're going to have two layers of thread. If you uh, just spiral on up, you may have lumps and bumps, hinging how much twist you have in the thread. But instead, if you do a reverse this reverse jam hitch, you begin at the back very smoothly, and you never go backwards. You wind forwards to the point that you need to be to apply that first material. Say a tail on a, maybe it's a, a nymph, and you're putting a tail on. Well, you want a thread foundation to begin with, so reverse the direction of the jam hitch. Tie it on with a thread beginning at the back, proceeding toward the eye to the point that you want to be. Tie in your, your tail and wind back over it. Then as you're already back at the tail to begin your body and your rib and everything. Proceed on forward from there. So plan it out in your head long before the thread ever hits the hook. I, I do want to talk about a couple of things. And, and we were talking about, uh, well, sharing information and internet access and so forth. I want to give a little plug to a website. And it's the Global Fly Fisher. Brilliant. Martin, Brilliant. Martin Jorgensen. Oh, you know it then. Martin Jorgensen has an incredible site. And for those who may be listening, check out the Global Fly Fisher. Um, I have some tips there, some video tips there. I have several articles that are, he posted, but also there's some, some videos that might be useful to folks. And if they go to the HTTPS, da, 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 flyfisher, all one word, .com forward slash video forward slash tips, forward slash search. There's, I believe, 50, 53, something like that videos that he has posted that are tips that folks might find useful. I hope that they do at least. And another thing I wanted to mention is is not, um, it hasn't happened yet, but it's been in the works for some period of time. And that's, uh, I mentioned Buzz Music. There's, The what was the Federation of Fly Fishers, then it became the International Federation of Fly Fishers, and now it's officially called Fly Fishers International. Mm -hmm. This organization began in about 19, officially 1965. In 1970 was the first Buzz Music Memorial Fly Tying Award presented, and that's been given to uh, a lot of different folks, from Dave Whitlock to Art Flick to on and on and on it goes. And so uh, November of... um, 2020, I believe it was, Dutch Bowman from Dallas, Texas, who is in charge of their learning center, the FFI Learning Center, he contacted me about the idea of doing a library, and we got together, and we came up with a plan of doing what we're calling the Buzz Music Fly Tying Library, and in that library will be information about Buzz, and it's, it's kind of a shame. That if you ask any of the living, there's, there's about half the recipients are deceased now. But mm-hmm. uh, those of us that are still living, if you ask them who Buzz Music was, they won't know. And if you receive a award in somebody's name, it's kind of nice to know who and why it's about. Well, that's going to be a, a fairly good section, is my understanding, about Buzz. But additionally, there will be separate libraries for each one of the recipients. And including those that are deceased is the goal. And we hope to reach family members and friends of those people to track down articles and tips. It's a learning library. It's going to be full of fly tying information. That's the goal is to share information. Now, when this library is going to become live, I cannot tell you. I've been working on it, say, since November of 2020. I'm kind of his guinea pig. And I've got (laughs) uh, uh, 20 some odd articles that I've written. And uh, again, there's a little over 50 videos. Thanks to Runar Warhus that I mentioned earlier in, in Oslo. Runar Warhus is just an incredible editor of my videos, and he's a, a nasty, mean <laughs> editor of articles.
1: <laughs> Uh, oh my goodness
0: he'll i'll send him an article and he will edit it and send it back we've had 12 edits going back and forth before both of us were settled with it and thankfully he has done that for me he's just done a terrific job and then he did the video editing for me and so anyway we have those and we submitted those available to dutch and they're putting together now the crew to be able to set up the it crew to be able to do the website and so forth this will be um on the ffi learning center so the fly fishers international website in their learning center eventually and it's i i think it's going to be really fantastic to really memorialize and display uh, all those fly tires that are represented by this award and it'll be available to anybody um, so that there's just lots and lots and lots of of good historical solid sound fly tying information so I, I think it's going to be kind of a neat project. Uh, it's, I've been kind of hush-hush about it because very, very few past recipients even know about it yet. The official invitation letter is yet to go out, but uh, maybe they'll hear about it on this podcast.
1: I don't know. <laughs> what I love about it is that it is a lot of younger people nowadays don't know who those people are.
0: And we need to know our history. We need to know where we came from. Oftentimes they think, well, I've got this great new killer-dealer pattern. Guess what? Somebody already did it long before you.
1: Well, uh, it's interesting what you're saying now because I've probably learned more about tying from students than I actually have from anyone else. So I once had a student to – so I teach people to whip finish uh, in hand. I do too. I I start them in hand. I say you've got to understand what the process is. And how it works. And if you can do it in hand, you can do it with a tool. But I prefer sure. it in hand because I, I think I've got more control. Um, well, here, I let me it. let me
0: throw this one at you. Lefty Cray it was another one. The same day he showed me that, he said, how do you, whip finish i had an old thompson whip finisher that's what i used now before i bought that whip finisher mickey powell buzz music son-in-law that owned the shop with at that time virginia music his uh, buzz's wife who was still there at the time anyway he said i'm not going to sell you a whip finish tool until you learn to do it by hand and he taught me how to do it by hand and then later darwin atkin told me the quote unquote, correct way to do it. And if you want it, we can get into that. But there is a better way to do it than what what, uh, Mickey showed me. That said, I still bought the tool because I thought, well, that was the right way to do it. Lefty said, by the time you pick up that tool, I'll be done. Well, I suspect, Gordon, you and I are just alike. We could care less about speed we're concerned with accuracy. And so mm-hmm. Lefty was doing it for speed and that's fine, but I, I do hand whip finish because I can place the thread exactly where I want it to be that I cannot do sometimes
1: with a tool. Well, I mean, example. So you're tying a size 28 emerger. Placing the thread with your, to, uh, with your tool is problematic, but doing it in hand, and you would think hands would be a problem because it's such a small hook. But it's all about, a lot of people don't understand, and I don't know why people move so fast, but sometimes by going fast, you actually slow yourself down. Well, for instance, a
0: simple example is a parachute. What a lot of people do, well, a lot of people tie it off on the post, and that's fine. But if you're tying off at the eye, oftentimes they'll pull the barbs up in order to be able to get their tool in place. It's so easy to, by hand, reach underneath and place the thread winds very precisely. In Mm -hmm. fact, may I suggest it's always smarter to whip finish in the direction of the eye, because if you wind back in the direction of the bend, when you pull it tight, the winds actually stack on top of themselves, and you don't get nearly as secure uh, uh, a whip finish as if you did when you wind progressively adjacent winds toward the eye and pull it up. And mm-hmm. you can place those wines so much more precisely by hand. You just can't do it with a tool.
1: Okay. So the thread control for me is a massive one. And I actually want to quote something here. So in the world's best trout flies, you talk about a fly called the stuck shuck midge. And it's essentially a very small fly. You tie it size 20 to size 24. Um And keep in mind, this book was written in 1994. You speak about thread control. You say, also, flat thread covers more areas with less bulk than twisted. So periodically, untwist the bobbin holder until the thread looks like flat floss. So I remembered that. I read that and I remembered it. Do you know when I teach people to tie, almost no one knows what thread control is? It's the most amazing thing, even, even so-called experienced tires.
0: As I mentioned earlier, if you have control of your thread and you have an understanding of the nature of those materials and you have those other two points of visibility and dexterity, that's, those are the keys. And knowing when you want to have twisted thread, when you don't want to have twisted thread. For instance, let's say that I'm uh, – I'll give you two examples where thread control is so, so handy. Let's say that I'm doing an Elkkar caddis wing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm now bear in mind, I'm tying, there's a lot of difference between a left-hand tire, right-hand tire, winding over and under in the what I call a conventional direction, and winding under and over, not over and under, under and over in the quote-unquote unconventional direction. Mm-hmm. Now, for example, uh, Ollie Edwards ties left-handed in an under and over direction. That's the same direction as you and I tie right-handed over and under.
1: So but I that, just want to I just want to put our audience in the loop here. So Ollie Edwards wraps his thread towards himself. Is, is that well, he's, he's actually he instead of taking his his bobbin holder.
0: <clears throat> excuse me. Let me get a drink here. Excuse me. No problem. <clears throat> instead of winding over the top of the shank of the hook and then back underneath toward him, he's actually winding underneath the shank of the hook and then back over the top and toward him that way. Yes. That's okay. exactly what I
1: I'm
0: saying. Left-handed. Okay. So what I'm doing is the same thing by tying right-handed. I'm taking the thread and I'm going over the top and underneath and back toward me. It's just a mirror image of the same thing. Got it. I okay. Totally
1: understand.
0: So, so when I'm, let's say that I'm doing a cell care caddis and I'm doing right-hand tying over and under. What I'm going to do in order to get the thread to lay in the proper position as well as cut down into the hair, I'm going to twist the bobbin holder in a counterclockwise direction. In other words, as the bobbin holder is hanging below the the hook, looking down on the bobbin holder, think of it as a face of a clock. Mm -hmm. So if if it's spinning in a counterclockwise direction, what's going to happen is it's going to put a twist in the thread that's going to kick the thread toward my left hand right into my left hand instead of going into the butts of the hair. So what happens is I'm holding the butt or the uh, wing for the elk air caddis in my fingers of my left hand. I spin the bobbin holder in a counterclockwise direction. As I mm-hmm. wind the thread over the top, the first wind goes toward my fingers, not toward the butt ends at the over the eye. The Got second it. wind goes even behind that. And then I pull straight up. By pulling straight up, I've got twisted thread that's going to be slightly stronger than flat thread because it is corded together. It's Mm -hmm. going to cut down into the hair. And by pulling straight up, I reduce thread torque. In other words, the wing is not going to pull over and around the far side of the hook nearly as much as it does if you pull straight down. Dick Nelson, a, a music recipient, coined the phrase pull up to pull down. So if you pull straight up, The material tends to go straight down. When you're tying your full dress salmon flies, if you want that that right jungle cock side to go in place, wind the thread around and pull the bobbin holder straight back to you, and the jungle cock will go straight into the wing. If you want the far side, the le- what I call the left wing, if you want the jungle cock on that side to go straight in, wind the thread around, around one wind, and then push your bobbin holder away from you, and that, that jungle cock side will slide right back up into the wing. Same mm-hmm. thing, pulling pulling straight down, we'll pull a material up underneath the uh, eye, the, the shank of the hook. So anyway, that, that elk care caddis wing, by pulling straight up, the wing seat's exactly centered on top of the shank of the hook because you're reducing thread torque, and the thread has gone back to your towards your left fingers, not into those loose uh, tips out over the eye. But let's change that. Let's say that we want to do a muddler minnow head, and we want the uh, uh, hair clump to spin around the shank of the hook. Well, if you twist your thread, again, you cord it, you're going to strengthen it slightly. Plus mm-hmm. the fact if you twist it in a clockwise direction, Now the thread is going to want to migrate toward the eye, not back towards your hand. So what Mm -hmm. you do is you take a couple of winds around, and instead of pulling straight up, this time you just continue to wind. And as you wind, it'll spin the collar around, it'll spin the butts around, and your thread will progressively go toward the eye right through the butts of the hair. So by knowing which direction to twist the thread, you accomplish totally two different objectives, but they do what you want them to do. You understand what thread does. You understand where it's going to go and it accomplishes the purpose that you are trying to achieve. Plan ahead and you, and that's all there is to it. Understanding the material, you know, you know why it spins around, you know how it collapses. You've taken a, 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 the best thing in the world that I would suggest to your listeners is go out and buy a digital microscope on the internet. They're cheap. Less than fifty bucks, and start looking at your materials. You will be
1: astounded what you'll see in your materials. It's amazing. How did you get into classic salmon flies? I mean, who who helped you with that?
0: That goes back to nineteen seventy-seven, I believe it was. There was Fly Fisherman magazine cover that Paul Jorgensen had that everybody loved. Had an uh, what was an orange parson or something rather on the cover, the and- orange parson. Yeah, everybody got excited about that cover. And I did, too. And I thought, well, this is really cool. And I just thought that would be a neat next step. And and I got into that. And then uh, Dr. Gene Mathias, who was a very good friend of, of Buzz Music, actually, uh, as a boy growing up. He. Uh, by the way, I'll throw this one out. His, th- maybe those that are in the Olympics might recognize this. His brother, Bob Mathias, was the first two-time decathlon champion in the world in 1948 and 1952. And they were friends of Buzz, and they fished with him, and they got materials for him and so forth. But anyway, Gene Mathias uh, decided that he was going to fly back to New Boston, New Hampshire to Bill Hunter's fly shop. Hunter's Angling Supply, and take a class from Bill on tying classic salmon flies. The, I think it was the very same day, the, and definitely the next day, Gene flew home from that class. I was over at Gene's house, and uh, he pulled out Jorgensen's book that he had on salmon flies, and which I had at that point, and uh, he uh, had notes that he'd taken at, at Bill's class, and he and I went over those notes together. And I got into tying salmon flies at that time. And then by 19, uh, I think it was 82, we had Bill fly out here to California and give us a class. And I I still remember him, which really patted me on the back, but I was almost embarrassed about it. He said, why are you taking this class, Wayne? And he'd seen my flies, I guess, or something or other. But I, I, I wasn't that good. I needed his help. And it was just a wonderful class. And one of the things that he impressed upon me, he says, when you teach classes, don't have these people tying these big six, seven odd, eight odd flies, because it wipes out the stash, the stash of materials that are out there. It's getting materials of size is extremely difficult as it is. So tie them realistically, because most of the flies when they're fished were, you know, one ought two ought ones three ought maybe and Mm -hmm. that's plenty big and then he says also going after exotic materials he says (sighs) don't get into that you can find out all kinds of substitute materials that will tie beautiful functional fishing tools and that's what bill wanted was a fishing tool Mm -hmm. that worked beautifully well as you know uh there's the feather thief the book that's out and and uh what Edwin did with uh, stealing museum pieces and then selling them all over the world, it's just made matters worse. And it's made fly tying, especially salmon fly tying, look bad because of it. You don't have to have all those exotics to tie beautiful flies. There are ways to acquire legal materials that are just wonderful. And mm-hmm. you don't have to tie all that with that, the stuff that's illegal. But anyway, Bill taught me that and emphasized that to me. And then I started teaching classes. And I think, uh, yeah, I'm not sure when my first class, probably 1984 at a conclave. And I remember Marvin Nolte took that class. And now Marvin just ties beautiful flies and is, still
1: does it and does a great job. Okay. So I want to get back to this whole concept of the uh, of fly tying and social media. We spoke about YouTube and how there are many ties on YouTube who shouldn 't actually be there, so YouTube is fantastic because it's opened up a lot of things, and there are many, many tires on YouTube who are fantastic, but the challenge is for every one fantastic tires, there are three hundred who are not great at all yep. and for someone starting out discerning between who to follow and who not to follow can be problematic. Um, who are tires? you think are good at what they do and who are worth following just davy obviously- mcphail davy mcphail
0: okay who else i think i think davy is just absolutely superb uh charlie craven does a great job uh he's 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 a little stiffer shall we say but he he does he's he's a superb fly tire a very casual fly attire that's uh, uh, become a good friend of mine, and I think he's a friend of yours, is Vladimir, Pet- Vladimir Petrovic. Uh, mm-hmm. He ties very simple flies. But what I really, really enjoy about Vladimir is he's teaching techniques. He mm-hmm. makes takes great pains to share techniques in his tying. He may spend... A third of his time just talking about techniques like reverse jam hitch or proper ways to do a whip finish or thread control. And well, it's it's all about thread control for him. Mm-hmm. And I love that about him. It, there, there, he was on the Serbian uh, fishing team for a while. And so, of course, he's doing nymphing type stuff. He's really into beadhead type flies. And he, my goodness, a little boy can catch fish everywhere.
1: Tell us about the fishing you enjoy doing. I mean, we've been talking about tying, but what kind of fishing do you enjoy doing? Well, I love fishing for trout.
0: Uh, I live near Sequoia National Park where the giant the s- sequoia trees are that are the largest trees in the world. And and uh, there's a stream there that I really, really enjoy fishing that has uh, South Fork Kern golden, and golden trout in it. And they're just spectacular, very small fish. The biggest one I've ever caught was 11 inches uh, in that location. But uh, they're just gorgeous. I love fishing there. Uh, but I also I love fishing Montana. Donna, and I love fishing there. We've uh, we enjoy fishing in Utah. We fish it in Wyoming, um, but Montana. I guess we've spent more time there fishing than any place. Um, I love I love picky fishing. In other words, uh, small flies in very very picky situations where the spooky spooky fish, but you're stalking them at close range. I love that. Um, I love bass fishing, bluegill, crappie, uh, with flies. Uh, I've had very limited experience fishing the salt, but I thoroughly enjoy that. Uh, but um, if if they swim and they're interested in fly, odds are I'm probably interested in them. And uh, but probably trout is what I fish for more than anything else. But um, given the opportunity, a bass on a fly, wow! Smallmouth, largemouth, both. That's a that's a real kick.
1: So. I love a bass. I absolutely love a bass. I, what I like about the bass is how they commit to a fly.
0: You know, if you put a popper out there, a deer hair popper, and you twitch it, and then you just don't do anything. Just leave uh-huh. it alone. And you just leave it alone. And you just know that they used to say, smoke a cigarette and then <laughs> and twitch the fly. Well, I don't smoke, but anyway. So you, you leave it there and then you just give it a little twitch. And then all of a sudden, there's this explosion and this thing comes out of the water and then comes down on the top of the fly and hits
1: it. That, boy, that'll wet your pants. I tell you, <laughs> that's pretty exciting. So tell me, when you're fishing, let's talk tippets now quickly. Yeah. Do you like to sink a tippet or float a tippet?
0: Good question. I've taken some underwater photographs of, of tippets and it's really interesting Um it looks like a stick. You know, people are really, really concerned about tippet size and so forth. But uh, my goodness, even 6X, 7X, you're going to see it. It's attached and uh, it's very visible. I honestly can't say that I've done a lot of personal research on sinking tippets. A lot of people really prefer to sink the tippet as it approaches the fly. Um, I've, I've not... Done enough serious homework on that to say, but I will say that my underwater photographs of a floating tippet—there's no question you can see it. And and some of these tippet materials that say that they're less visible in the water—it eh, has to do with the lighting conditions. I've I've got pictures of tippets under. I've got a lot of underwater pictures of like golden trout and so forth that I've caught, and sometimes you do not see the tippet at all, and other times it again it's like a stick underwater. So it's it's visible uh, under the right lighting circumstances, uh, sunken or not.
1: Um, Okay. I want to talk about, let's go back to Hackle. Okay. Hackle predominantly, okay, so Hackle has taken many, many years to get to where it is today. Basically, people have spent lifetimes effectively, uh, selectively, genetically breeding these birds to a point where where we have feathers like we've never seen them before i mean if 50 years ago you could not get what you're getting now even our worst tackle now is like like very much different to what you were getting 50 years ago by looking at, at at the stuff from the 90s and i've still got some of it and you compare it to the stuff now and you go gee whiz Oh, yeah, yeah. rooster,
0: grizzly, grizzly rooster for me and back in the day was more of a, from a domestic bird, no less. And then Henry Hoffman came along, and we thought, whoa, what is this? Yeah, we were all using those India capes, sometimes Chinese capes back in the day. But when Henry came along, and then, then uh, uh, Hebert came along and, and others, uh, and then when Tom Whiting started, oh, my goodness. And it, it just went nuts from there. The stuff that he's producing is just phenomenal.
1: Just amazing. Okay, but there is one thing, okay, with hackle that I don't like. And I'll tell you what it is. Okay. Hackle for me is extremely stiff. So take a fly, a hackled fly, okay, blow on it. You will see that those barbs hardly move. Yep. What I have found is that's a good thing. If you're fishing faster water, that's fantastic because you need the structure to keep that fly floating. What I, and I don't know if other people have found this, but what I have found is sometimes fish will reject the fly if there's not a bit of movement in it, just inbuilt mobility. So what I do is I, I try and incorporate parts of the fly, moving parts of the fly that will just move on their own, like maybe some CDC fibers under the under hackle. The and I've personally found that since doing that, I've, I don't know, I catch more fish.
0: You're not alone. Uh, Vladimir Petrovic, excuse me, what he does is he uses a lot of CDC for his hackle and so that it moves on the water. And I've seen your parachute that you have where you extend it out a little bit longer there with that softer materials. Uh, Chris Williams in Boise, Idaho, he has a a caddis that I like that, uh, uh, I won't get into the details of the fly, but the hackle is kind of cool. What he does is he ties... uh, Well, I I do need to describe the fly. Basically, it's a a dub body, so to speak, with a CDC underwing and then an overwing of a a Hebert hen saddle feather that he's Mm -hmm. uh, put some thin shoe goo or goop or something or other on. Excuse me. And then uh, for the hackle, what he does is he puts on an undersized dry fly. And the undersized dry fly is. To help to float the fly, support the fly, but then in front of that, he ties a hen hackle, and so the hen hackle has the movement of legs on the caddis, and the smaller, like let's say if it's a size fourteen, he'll put on a sixteen or an eighteen dry fly hackle mm-hmm. behind that soft hackle, and um, I've fished those flies on, like for instance, uh, well Donna and, and my wife Donna and, and Steve Fernandez and I were fishing uh, a place. Called Hot Creek Ranch on the eastern side of the Sierras, and there was some small, oh, I don't know, whatever it was, uh, midges or whatever coming off at that point. And we fished some with those, that little tiny bit of hackle, way undersized, and we t- and we fished some flies without any hackle, and because we wanted, we but we we wanted them to, to just, we didn't want a lot of stiff stuff sticking out. And that little bit of undersized hackle was enough to really make a huge difference in floating that fly. Uh, and yeah. it, 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 it sort of softens the view, shall we say, a little bit by putting something else in there. You, you get the support you need, uh, even though it's way undersized, but then you put something in front of it, for instance, CDC, or, um, or yeah, CDC or a hen hackle or something like that. And it really provides a little extra movement. And in those the slow
1: water situation makes a big difference. I like this thing you're talking about: stiffer hackle combined with a softer material, because to me that's intelligent fly tying. You know, the hackle helps float the fly. Because let's face it: I mean, everyone goes on about CDC being so buoyant, but you wet CDC. I mean, there's nothing wetter than wet CDC. It's wet. You, you
0: can, can you can dry it. You can use desiccants and so forth on it, and you and can. It, but it but works. you gotta once the fish slimes it, you gotta wash it off thoroughly, or it's it's
1: sunk. But it's not like hackle. Hackle comes to life quicker, faster, quicker. I mean, yep. It, it, yep. CDC sort of, I don't know, catch three or I four would, fish on a fly, and it's done. I, w- I would be tempted to do the, well, I think
0: Vladimir would disagree with you because he certainly disagreed with me, but I would, I would do a kind of a combination of what we're doing with the dry fly hackle and then maybe throw some CDC. And I want to play with that a little bit more and see what we can come up with. Uh, by the way, let me throw something at you. Yeah. A standard dry fly. Now I'm talking mm-hmm. about not a parachute, but a standard dry fly. I don't care if it's an Adams or Royal Wolf or whatever. Mm-hmm. A lot of people believe that a standard dry fly will will dance on the water on the hackle tips and tail. No. It, do, it does not. I've shown people that if you take the fly, and I no tippet attached, just take a cup of water and take mm-hmm. the fly and drop it a half an inch or less above the mm-hmm. water, it will submerge about halfway down to the body. Yes. You take the same fly, blow it off all you want to as if you're false casting, drop it again, the second time it will submerge flush to the water. So the body is now flush, and the hackle barbs that were below the level of even with the hook shank are now submerged. You might as well tie a parachute. A exactly. standard dry fly hackle is not going to dance on the hackle tips and tail. It just no, doesn't
1: it, do it. It's, ne- it's never done it. And the thing is, especially on smaller flies, the those the, the stiff... Hackle fibers um, uh, can occlude the hookup. They can affect hookups
0: negatively. It's a, a griffith A Griffith's a classic. Griffith's gnat, when I tie a Griffith's and say, 20s on down to 22s, maybe even a 24, what I'll do with that, or even an 18, I will trim out a V-notch underneath it. Because you. I've missed, uh, when I've uh, Donna. I used to fish the San Juan River in New Mexico, and these big old honking fish that were there would sip, a lot of midges and a Griffiths work pretty well there. And and so I'm fishing this little size twenty Griffiths, and oh my, I would miss fish after fish. And then it finally, well, duh, Wayne, think about what you're doing. You're close. It's it's like a hackle guard, or a, 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 it just it just you're blocking the hook point. So just knock it out. You can either trim it flush, or trim it at least in a V to open it up. And then all of a sudden,
1: I started hooking fish. What advice would you give fly tires today? Someone starting out. Probably the best advice would be
0: to find a, a, someone you can mentor. Uh, that's what I did. Clarence Bootsback was the name of my mentor. And uh, here I was, in 1974, just starting out. And I found out there were a group of tires that I would meet at a, a public building in town on Tuesday nights. And I went down there and... and. uh grabbed a paper towel out of paper towel dispenser and took notes like crazy and come home and titled Midnight in my little uh, TV tray and um, became good close friends with Clarence. And we fished together for years until his passing. And uh, I think that's a, a real bonus to find someone that you can mentor with. And that would be my best advice. How you do that and find someone who's capable, that's the challenge. Because a lot of people, For instance, we're talking social media, think they're really skilled fly tires. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can produce a gorgeous fly. Maybe they can't. Oftentimes they don't know, but not a lot of them are good teachers. Uh, One of the best fly tires I've ever seen in my life was a gentleman by the name of Eric Otzinger, and luckily died at 53 from a brain bleed. He was amazingly skilled because he was an excellent fisherman, and those Mm -hmm. two together make for better fly tires. But I would, I would push him. and say, Eric, you know, teach. And he says, I can't Wayne. I can't. He had a fly that's called a V. Well, I call it a V wing mayfly. He didn't have a name for it. And so I came up with a way of doing it. And I said, how do you do it, Eric? He says, I, I, I don't know. I just do it. And that was not yeah. just, <laughs> it, it, he wasn't keeping a secret. He didn't. He just, he was this naturally skilled fly tire that he just cranked out these gorgeous flies. And, uh, well, to give you an idea of how good a fisherman he was, I fished on a uh, what's called a canyon stretch of Hot Creek with him one time, and he put me in this one stretch that was about 100 feet long. And I went through it with a little nymph, and I caught uh, 10 fish out of that one one run. I thought, boy, I was hot stuff. He came behind me and caught 12 fish. He came back through the same stretch again and caught 12 more and went through it a third time and caught 12 more. Yeah, <laughs> that was humbling. So, but he just, he was a superb fly tire and, but he says, I can't teach. He says, I can tie. I just can't teach. And it was such a shame because he came up with some wonderful patterns that, um, his hot Creek caddis is still one that everybody ties and loves. He, he just, he came up with some great ideas and some extremely effective fishing tools who were well tied, but he didn't know how to teach. So, but there are other people that are very, very good teachers and you should learn from them. And uh, I think Dave McPhail is a, is a good example of somebody who, teach, who can tie anything and do it extremely well. His accent is a little tough. Uh, he lives in Ayr, Scotland. I think he still lives in Ayr. <laughs>
1: uh,
0: uh, he but he's, he's really, really skilled. And
1: uh, you can learn a lot watching him. When you watch a good fly tie, it looks effortless. It doesn't look like it's hard work for them because it's not hard work for them.
0: Yep. One of the things that I like to point out, I I would tie like a size 12 Royal Wolf, then a size 20 Royal Wolf, then a size 26 Royal Wolf. Totally different flies because of the materials, not just the tying techniques, the materials. You have to come up with different materials for the floss because if you use red floss for a size 26, it looks burgundy. So you have mm-hmm. to come up with a solution for that. You can't use the same wing material. Maybe use calf tail for the wing on the larger fly, maybe calf body on those uh, 18 or 20. But what are you going to use on the 26? So I came up with a goat, a little white goat hair that I used that came up with the, the right texture and appearance and curliness that matched the other flies. For the tails, it's not a big deal. Maybe, uh, maybe use... Uh, Oh, maybe bull elk neck for the tails on the first two, and they get away with that. But what are you going to use on a 26? Well, I learned to use the barbs off of the guard hairs of a muskrat. Uh, you know, the, what are you going to use for the hurl on, on a royal wolf in a size 26? Well, you, you won't, on a typical upper tail covert, an eyed upper tail covert, you're not going to find hurled barbules that are short enough. So, mm-hmm. but if you look at the sword, yeah, you do. You know, you just modify, and that's, I think, where, uh, that's the thinking part of fly tying, is you make a great point. Tie a fly and then tie it in a smaller size, and tie a lot of them, and that's the way you learn. Yeah. Learn your materials. Know your materials. Know the nature of your materials. Know what's available to you, and and you don't have to use what the quote-unquote pattern calls for. You may find something that's far superior. You've
1: opened up my eyes because of the reverse hitch. Oh, yeah. Uh, Have you not thought of that one before? You know what? I haven't thought of it. I've, I haven't actually thought of it. I like not it. thought of it's, it. Well, a lot of people don't.
0: A lot of people think it's a waste of time, but for instance, there's a there's a book that I was involved with, and in, I think it's 2002, called The Bas- Basic Fly Tying, a Stackpole book, and John Rounds uh, edited the book. Some people think it's my book; it's not. I tied the flies for it. Mike uh, uh, Radinsich did the photography, and we did that in Missouri at his house. And John was fairly new at fly tying at that point, and and he he did the writing for it. And there's Frankly, a lot of errors in it, but that's okay. But anyway, that book, there's, oh, what is it? Seven flies, nine flies, something like that. All of them except two begin with a reverse jam hitch. And he wouldn't let me show it. And I said, why not? And he says, well, they're, they're absolutely new tires and they won't understand. I said, well, they don't understand anything. The whole point is to, <laughs> what I wanted to do was with each fly, introduce a new step, something a little bit unique, and they could use it or not use it and, and build on that. And s- so many of my students have said, man, I wish I would have known that when I was a beginning fly tire. And I have said, man, so do I wish I would have known that when I was a beginning fly tire. And <laughs> so why not introduce something? He wouldn't let me do it. He wouldn't let me show a hand whip finish. He insisted on a, a Frank Mattarelli's tool. And I love Frank Mattarelli. What a sweet gentleman he was, lived to, I think, 102 when he passed away. What a neat man. But uh, great tool. He gave me a couple of his beautiful stainless steel ones. And when he found out that I didn't use them because I use a hand-whip finish, he says, well, Wayne, you can just send them back to me. And I said, no, they're <laughs> precious. But uh, it's it's just there's – it. it There's so many techniques that could be shared, and that book, he wouldn't allow me to do it. But the reverse jam hitch, as I say, seven or all but two of the flies began that way because I needed a thread foundation that would begin with the first portion of the fly material being tied down nearer the eye than the bend. So why not Mm -hmm. begin the thread foundation at the bend and work my way to the eye? Yeah. It's so useful, so useful.
1: What do you do, okay, with your hands? How do you keep your hands smooth for tying?
0: Oh, yeah, that's tough. I have really dry fingers, and so I use a fingernail file to grind my hands down. I also use hand lotion. When I was tying salmon flies a lot, um, oh, come on, it's Pingling. No, not Pingling. Zwicky, uh, Swiss company, Zwicky Floss. Zwicky had a hand lotion for handling floss. And I use their lotion, and I would just use a little bit on the tips of my fingers. I don't like using gloves for floss, so I, I would use that. But I have dry enough fingers that I have to uh, – in fact, if you look at the videos, you'll see my crusty fingers.
1: And That's why I was saying it because yeah. I, I saw your crusty yeah. fingers.
0: Oh yeah, it's it's really bad. And I uh, I worked in medicine all my career, and I just wash my hands a bazillion times a day. And I I don't know if that's what did it or not, but I just I have really really dry fingers, so I have to use hand lotion on my hands. Polly Rosborough bought Cornhuskers lotion by the case, and that's what he used. It's a it was a real glycerin based material, real slippery stuff. I don't like it, but it's still probably available out there. But he literally bought it by the case. And uh, some of us that have dry fingers, it it makes it tough for dubbing, and you can fray thread if you're not really careful. But fingernail file, find that down.
1: Yeah, especially when you're working smaller flies, thinner threads.
0: Yeah, nylon thread has approximately a 15 to 30% stretch. Polyester has about a 5% or maybe a little bit better stretch, and GSP has almost zero stretch. But you can get into Kevlar, you can get into wire, you can get into monofilaments, you can get into all kinds of different threads, but those are the three that most people tie with. GSP is, uh, I don't tie with, personally, I don't tie with GSP hardly ever in larger denier than 50 denier. I tie 50, I have 30, and I also have some 20 that I got from Semperfly that I really, really like for small flies. Mm-hmm. Um, it tends to be a little bit stiff, not as stiff as Kevlar, but a little bit stiffer than polyester. Uh, it does have no stretch, but it's so blooming strong that it, it is really nice on small flies when you're using like a 20 denier. Um a favorite thread, believe it or not, is probably the, one of the weakest threads out there, and that's Flymaster. Danville's Flymaster, 70 denier. Um, I like it a lot. And I've tied with – Danville's is good. a
1: classic. Danville's is a classic.
0: It's a great thread. It's very weak. Very weak. Uh, but it – and it's extremely tw- – it is probably the most twisted thread out there. Nearly, not all, nearly all threads have a clockwise inherent twist. But mm-hmm. – uh, for instance, um, Loggerton thread has a counterclockwise twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there may be one or two others, but it's the one I do know it has a counterclockwise twist. There are very, very few that are flat wound, but not an old NIMO that you used to be able to get. Uh, Belding Corticelli NIMO was a nylon thread and it was flat wound. But um, most of them have a clockwise twist. And that clockwise twist, again, is... It varies from one to the next. There are also two strand twisted threads. Uh, Vivas has a what is it there? Sixteen odd I think it is. It has a two strand. It's two strands that are both clockwise twists, and then it's twisted mm-hmm. further. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. We could we could talk about a lot about threads, but uh, uh, stretch. Uh, how that stretch is effective, how that stretch can be your enemy as well as your friend. I've tied, for instance, talking salmon flies, uh, what is it, the captain, I think it is, that has maybe three different materials as tail veilings. I think it's something Mm -hmm. like that. I've actually had the next day the tail veilings unstack because of thread torque from the stretch of nylon thread. Okay. They actually continue to pull on the material, even though they're perfectly stacked. When I tie the fly and walk away from it, 24 hours later, they can actually unstack because of tor- continued pressure torquing on that thread. So understanding thread is, as I said, of those four different steps that I think can make a quality fly tire that's one you've got to have an understanding of is, is the nature and, and the ability to control and understand what Thread can do for you and what it can't do for you.
1: I just want to thank you for coming on the show.
0: Oh, my goodness. Thank you. This has really been a pleasure. I, uh, I had mentioned to you that I had some apprehension about some podcasts in the past that people just – some of those folks don't really pay a lot of attention to their guest. And you can tell they're maybe thinking their next question or who knows what they're thinking about. But this has been like a casual conversation among friends. And I really appreciate that. This has been a a great deal of fun for me.